somebody once asked me the question, what is it that when you do it, you know that's why God created you? And I, my answer for that is always simple. He, he made me to be a faithful husband to Margaret, a good dad to Katrina and Jenny, and to preach the gospel. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Andy Peck. Delighted to be this week's host. I'm the editor of Premier's Voice of Hope magazine and Youth and Children's Work magazine and also host of The Leadership File here on Premier Radio. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Premier Christianity is a monthly magazine with news, features, reviews and comments on the latest topics affecting Christians. You can receive a free sample by going to premierchristianity.com and clicking on the link marked Get your free issue on the homepage. And the magazine worth £5.95 can be yours very quickly. If you're a regular listener to the profile, you'll know that it's the show where we delve into someone's life, faith and ministry. And there are, of course, archive shows available on Premier's website and all the major podcast platforms. So if you enjoy this one, why not check out others? This week, I'm delighted to welcome Chick Yule. Yule is spelled Y-U-I-L-L and he's a man who has had a lifetime of service for Christ and is still going strong, age 74, with enthusiasm of a man in his 20s. Chick has spent over 45 years in full-time ministry and church leadership. Most of this time has been devoted to leading and pastoring local congregations, both in the UK and the USA. He's been a regular speaker at major Christian conferences such as Spring Harvest and Roots, and at churches, venues and conferences throughout the UK, as well as in a number of countries, including Canada, USA, South Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand, India and mainland Europe. Chick and his wife Margaret have been married for 52 years and have two adult daughters, Katrina, who is an actor, and Jenny, who is a lawyer. After his family has a number of passions, football, poetry, jazz, running, good conversation and good coffee. He's also an author. He began writing for a largely Christian audience with books such as Leadership on the Axis of Change and Moving in the Right Circles, Embrace the Discipleship Adventure. But he wanted to write for people who weren't Christians too and so decided to write books that aim to help non-believing readers engage with faith issues through stories. He's written five novels with the publisher Instant Apostle, including his latest, To the Fourth Generation, A Family Search for Truth and Forgiveness. He's also a broadcaster, now presenting the Faith, Hope and Love show for Premier on Friday mornings, 10 to 1. So it's great to have Chick on the other end of the microphone. Thank you. I don't know how anybody else feels about that introduction you gave me, but I was mightily impressed. Am I really that important? Well, it's uh, it's a joy to, to to chat with you, and we'll um, explore some of the ins and outs. And I'm sure you're, with your self-deprecating manner, you can <laughs> you can um, undermine my introduction for you. But um, well, I, I can talk. A, I can talk a bit about my latest book, Humility, and how I attained it. <laughs> Very good. Look, look forward to that. Yes, indeed. So um, we tend to start with a, a, a question about upbringing 
uh, and the faith journey, early faith journey. So uh, you're, you're from the other side of the border, I understand, you. Indeed, I'm proud to be Scottish, one of, one of the chosen race. Yeah. That's Where, did you, where were you born? I was born in a little town called Bells Hill, uh, which was then a coal mining town. Uh, my, my dad was a, a coal miner all his working life. Uh, and I was born in a little hole in the wall bed in a row of miners' houses where we had no electricity, only gas light. Um, so the world has changed a fair bit in my lifetime. And uh, did you have siblings? I have one sister who is five years older than me. Yep. Just the two of us. And and your your mum, she uh, was she a homemaker or did she have wider concerns? Now, my mum my was was largely a homemaker. I mean, my mum, she'd had rheumatic fever five times, which is, you know, kind of would be unheard of in today's world. Um, and almost died when I was born. I mean, she, she remained very active, but her health was always fragile. One of my big memories of childhood is my dad, who worked night shift in the coal mine, would come home on a Saturday morning and he'd make the breakfast for everybody. He'd do the weekly house cleaning um, uh, and, and then he'd have four hours rest. Uh, before I went out in the evening, because I was I was brought up in a Salvation Army family, um, and my dad would be out in the evening. I'm marching with the Salvation Army band, and um, uh, then then he'd come home later after all that, and and uh, we'd share prayer together. That that's the kind of upbringing I had, and my you know, I, I always say everything I know about being a loyal husband and a decent dad. I don't even know I know. I learned it from my dad and from my mum about the family life. Yeah, that's, that's my a, well, well, that's a lovely testimony to hear, Chick. Um, and that, that brings me to my second question. Of course, was uh, did you come grow up in a in a a faith family? Clearly, you did. Um, was there a point when you had to acknowledge that you wanted to embrace this, or was that a more gradual thing? Yeah. The, there was a there was a significant moment would not be right quite right, but a significant happening. I often say my experience is a bit like that of Mark Twain, who is reputed to have said, "When I was fourteen, my father was a fool. When I got to twenty-one, I was amazed at how much he'd learned in those seven years." Yes. And you know, I, I I remember being a teenager when I knew absolutely everything, uh, and thought I was really too intelligent for, for, for a Christian faith. And then somebody gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Um, I mean, I'm part of that generation that was just massively influenced by Lewis. And, and I loved the book. It was funny. It was perceptive. And it wasn't just the book itself. It was this realization, you know, here is a guy uh, who's much cleverer than I will ever be, who has a brain the size of a small planet, and who is convinced that the Christian gospel is true. I think I'd better sit up and take notice. And that was that was really the sort of turning point in my in, in my faith journey, that kind of realization that, 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 that there really is something here that is deep and strong and true. Um, and, and, you know, I would be foolish to discard it and walk away from it. So did you find that your your faith shaped your decision making in that from that time in terms of the the next stage of life or was it kind of a compartment which you know you made you made your decisions and god was in a compartment somewhere uh well the 
There certainly was a time in my life, um, and, and I think this is true for a lot of kids who were raised in, in the Salvation Army, where there was a fairly strict culture and, you know, like attendance at a football match or cinema was taboo. Uh, so I think I kind of compartmentalised all that. And at school, I am you know, didn't always live like somebody who had some kind of Christian faith. I don't mean I was a wild, wicked guy with a you know a criminal past or nothing like that but but I kind of compartmentalized them but I think what was very significant for me was that at 15 went on holiday to Bournemouth we, my my auntie had a large house in Bournemouth went there on the holiday and in the Sunday morning service saw a, a girl in the junior choir um, and took a real fancy to her um, and that, of course, with Margaret, who all these years later is my wife. But she had a more clear and definite Christian faith than I had. Um, and she certainly was very influential in, 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 in guiding me. Um, even though for a couple of years we had the kind of courtship, we were, she was living in Bournemouth and I was up in Scotland. And, but uh, we've still got all the, the letters up in the attic that we've promised our daughters they can read, but only after we've died. Um, but then uh, through, through that, as, as we spoke together about the future, there was a, a sense, first of all, more strongly in her life of, of God's calling to, to some kind of ministry and leadership. And I guess I got I was going to say contaminated by that. That's the wrong word. Infected by it. Um, and so uh, inevitably for, for a young couple like ourselves growing up in the Salvation Army, uh, ministry and, uh, in the Salvation Army was, 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 the, was the way forward. And, and that was the ministry we both fulfilled for ooh, 35 years. Yeah, long time. Yes, it's more typical, isn't it, that Salvation Army... Is it typical for, uh, it seems to me that it's more typical for Salvation Army couples to be leading uh, churches. Um, is that always the case? Could you have a single person whose, whose spouse is not part of the Salvation Army leading? That's an interesting question, because uh, at that time, no. Um, because old William Booth's idea was that, you know, that the couple had to be completely committed together to this way of life. Um, but in more recent years, and, and when it worked, it worked really well. For Margaret and I, it was great. We shared our ministry. We, we've always done that together. Um, but it was a kind of pattern that certainly did not suit every marriage. Uh, and that's been modified in the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. So that, you, you know, one, one spouse can be a Salvation Army officer and the other not engaged in, in other employment. But yeah, that was that was typical then. Yeah. Right. Well, so you discussed the your time in the Salvation Army um, back in 2017, November, in a profile. I don't know if you remember that, but um, so we won't we won't particularly focus on that in this in this interview. But tell us a little bit about the kind of places you you worked. Oh, we, uh, we, we ministered in, in London, in Archway, in North London, uh, in Newark, in Nottingham. Um, we ministered in Bristol. Uh, that, that was a, Bristol was a massive education because the, uh, the, the Salvation Army Church, the building was right in the St. Paul's area of Bristol. And that was during the time of, of some of the, of, of the rioting and the racial tension. So that, that, was, that was a wonderful uh, opportunity to be involved um, 
in, in a whole community like that. And then latterly, um, we spent five years uh, leading a Salvation Army congregation in Pasadena in uh, Southern California, where the sun shines a minimum of 250 days a year. That was, that was very nice. And then we came back to Manchester and I was the denominational leader for the Salvation Army in the Northwest of England. So that's that's been our experience, and I have to say it was a very rich experience. I'm, uh, and and I, I you know I, I got to know some wonderful wonderful people. What's the sort of um, um, kind of interest levels in the Salvation Army in the United States? I'm interested to hear you had a a, a call to Pasadena. Would there be yeah. many Salvation well, that, Army that's... places there? Oh yeah, yeah. Well. In one of the interesting things about the way the Salvation Army has evolved in America is it is probably best known as a charitable institution. In fact, for a number of years, it was the highest recipient of charitable giving in the United States. Um, but the vast majority of people would have little idea that the Salvation Army was principally and basically a Christian church uh, and, and all the, the caring ministry, the, the, the social action and the social service came out of that. So they've always had that kind of challenge of, of, of demonstrating, you know, who we really are. Um, but yeah, it has a massive profile in the United States, but a little bit different in balance from here in the UK. And would it be more typically that Salvation Army would work in what you might call the the, the, the poorer areas, the um, the less wealthy? I mean, Pasadena, you know, gives us images of um, <laughs> you know close to Hollywood and all that. That no doubt it was very different. Yeah, well, well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't because um, yeah, you're right. The way the Salvation Army has has evolved, it ministers to often the poorest and the neediest. The congregation in Pasadena uh, was made up of, of some very able people. I mean, we had university professors, professional people, uh, and one of the one of the reasons we were asked to go there uh, was that um, I guess there were not too many people with experience in the States of leading that kind of congregation. So we went out and did that for five years. And again, a great experience. Yeah. I like Lovely. sunshine. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, now you did mention in part of your notes uh, when we were kind of corresponding prior to this, that you'd, um, you appeared on the Jeremy Kyle show and I, I'm fascinated <laughs> yeah. to know at what point this, this took place. Um, uh, for the, for those unfamiliar with the Jeremy Kyle show, it's a British uh, tabloid talk show, which is presented by Jeremy Kyle, produced by ITV, uh, July 2005, ran for 17 series until its cancellation in May 2019, mm -hmm. after the sad death of a, a guest whose appearance had been filmed the week before. Uh, so that's the cut, just filling in that background to people wondering what the show is about. So how on earth did you manage to get on the Jeremy Kyle show, uh, Chick? Ah, that was it. And I'm not only on the Jeremy Cow show, on the 10 year highlights reel for the Jeremy Cow show, I'm right there. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. And they did a live link with the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas. Now, uh, if, if you don't know that church, they're, they're famous for a couple of things. I'm, 
They will fly all over the states when they hear of the death of, the, of an American serviceman and they will parade with placards saying that this is God's judgment on America. And you can guess they, they're not universally popular. Uh, the other thing about which they are famous is that they are virulently anti-gay. Now, I don't mean that they wrestle with the, with, with the issue of gay relationships as, as, as we all do. I mean, they are just nasty and unpleasant. If I tell you that on the live link, the three members of the congregation uh, were wearing black t-shirts with white lettering saying God hates fags. And I don't think they were talking about cigarettes. I mean, they were nasty. Um, and there was a panel in this country. Um, on my right was a woman whose son had been killed in active service with the British army in Iraq. And they told her in no uncertain terms that her son was undoubtedly in hell and damned for all eternity. On my left was the young fella who was the publicity officer for the gay and lesbian movement in the northwest of England. And I wouldn't even repeat what they said to him. And in the middle was me uh, trying to explain to the studio audience and the wider audience that Christianity and total insanity were not related terms. Uh, and, and it came my turn to, you know, on that kind of program, you only got a couple of chances to speak. Um, and Jeremy Kyle asked me what I thought. So I said to them, you know, your God seems angry. Uh, I don't think you're starting from the place where I start, that God is love. And I quoted John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And quick as a flash, they came back at me and they said, and, and this revealed everything that's wrong with their theology. You're wrong. God hates us until we repent, and then he loves us. Well, I mean, that is just a travesty of, of, of Christian doctrine. You know, it flies in the face of um, that while we were yet sinners, um, you know, God loved us. So that, that was my experience on the show. I'm trying to witness to a, a gospel that is loving to all people, unconditionally loving to all people. Fabulous. Well, thank, well done for, <laughs> for pitching in uh, yeah. in that sort of environment. I think uh, you're braver than most of us. Um, did you have any repercussions from that? Were people in touch with you afterwards in, in any positive or negative ways? Uh, well, the folk on the show, I mean, the, the, the young fellow on my left from the um, gay and lesbian movement, um, he, was, he was moved and impressed. And I just hope what I say uh, left a little bridge to the gospel for him. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh well, let's let's hope so. Um, so, um, as a fellow writer, um, I set out to do what you're doing with your books. Uh, we'll be coming to a break in a minute, so we may not have a the full chance to um, to discuss this in detail. But um, I, I failed to do it, and you clearly are, are able to do it. So I'm intrigued at your approach of raising faith issues in a way that appeals to a non-believing audience. It's a fabulous thing to be doing. Um, so talk me through how you got into writing, Chip, and well, then we'll go to uh, a break. Writing's always been part of my ministry, and I think I wrote eight or nine books over the years on subjects like uh, prayer, holiness, spiritual warfare, all that kind of stuff. But I got increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that the only people who would ever read those books would be committed Christians. 
Now, you know, there's a place for those books, and I hope mine made a little contribution, and I'm certainly not against uh, devotional books like that. But I just, it just worried me. And the other thing that focused my attention was was having had a, 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 a little brush with cancer. And there's nothing like a brush with a potentially fatal illness to say, hey, I've got a limited number of years. I'm really going to do this now. I'd always wanted to write fiction. I had no idea whether I could. Um, but I, I, I set out and I wrote the first one. And to my absolute astonishment, I mean, I, I can't say how good a writer I am or not. But to my absolute astonishment, it seemed to work. People responded to me on a level they'd never done before. Um, people, people felt the story moved them. And I thought, maybe I have some kind of gifting for this. And, and I, I actually found that I could touch people at a deeper level and in some ways I could touch Christian doctrine at, at a deeper level through the medium of story than I ever managed to do in in devotional writings and that may just because I wasn't very good at it but but that was my experience that it, I got to a deeper level I could tackle things by coaching them in story. Do you have favourite authors yourself that shaped in any way what you were doing do you uh, think? Yes, I do. Um, Marilyn Robinson, um, who wrote the wonderful Gilead. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with Gilead? It's I'm not a, familiar, but oh, you got to read I, Gilead. I've, I've heard of it. Yes. Oh, you got to read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And um, the only problem for me with reading somebody uh, like Marilyn Robinson, it's a bit like when I listened to Winton Marsalis playing the trumpet. I think, oh, I don't think I'll bother again. Um, she's just so good, but she she is is one of my favourite authors. Yeah, yeah, I, I just just love her writing, beautiful prose, and and writes about openly uh, Christian themes. And so, if you had to kind of characterise your writing for a potential reader, and obviously listeners to this are potential readers, uh, what what kind of style would it be? What what are you, what are your themes that you're unlocking in your books? I want to write about, I often say that for me, writing fiction involves three things. Because I, I thought, you, you know, people who wrote fiction made up stories. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like you wait for the story to come to you. So I will start a chapter and I won't even know how that chapter will end. I mean, I got a vague idea of where the book is going. But then after that waiting, there comes the work of, you know, there's, it's really hard work to put your bottom on a chair and start to write. People sometimes say, do I enjoy writing? No, I actually hate it, but I love it when I've done it. But then as I'm working, I'm constantly asking myself, how does this story weave into the big story? Where does it touch the big story? Where is it? Because I think most stories are all about the big issues of life. What do I do when I'm messed up? Where do I find grace? What do I do when life goes wrong? What do I do? How do I respond when somebody is nasty to me? So I try, I, I try very much not to write Christian novels. I don't like Christian novels very much. I want to write a good novel, but because I am a follower of Jesus and because my worldview is a Judeo-Christian worldview, that will inevitably shape and uh, impact the story. Fabulous. Well, you're listening to uh, Premier Christian Radio, and this is the profile 
with Chick Yule. Welcome back to the Premier Profile. I'm Andy Peck, your host today, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Uh, and this is the second part of my interview with Chick uh, Yule. Um, Chick has uh, spent 45 years or so in full-time ministry and uh, church leadership. We were talking uh, in the first section, particularly about uh, his, his uh, upbringing in Scotland, his eventual uh, marriage to uh, Margaret, uh, who was down in Bournemouth, uh, and his uh, work with the Salvation Army, uh, leading a number of congregations, including one over in Pasadena in uh, California. Uh, so, Chick, as you um, kind of came to the end of your time with, with Salvation Army and, and looked out into the horizon, what were the kind of things that you um, you wanted to do or that the Lord brought your way? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I knew that I, I did not want to step away from public ministry. Um, you know, I love... My writing has always been an extension of my preaching. I, somebody once asked me the question, what is it that when you do it, you know that's why God created you? And I, my answer for that is always simple. He, he made me to be a faithful husband to Margaret, a good dad to Katrina and Jenny, and to preach the gospel. I mean, when I, when I was a little kid, <laughs> I mean, like five years old, and my parents didn't have a car. We traveled on, on, on public buses. Uh, and I would stand on, on one of the seats and, and preach what I'd heard on a Sunday. I mean, it's it's just been part of who I am. So I certainly wanted to continue preaching. And I also made a vow. I was partly to protect myself, I think, but I vowed that I would never go seeking any job, but I would be open to whatever was offered me. And that's really how life has gone since then. Just at the, at the right time, God seems to have brought the right things. I mean, I often say to people who ask me, say, I'd like to pray for you. What can I pray for? My stock answer is just say thanks. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Uh, you mentioned preaching, uh, Chick, and... Um, mm. Obviously, you'll have seen in, in your time in public ministry, um, I guess what you would say is a, a decline in apparent interest in preaching and certainly a decline in the way our culture perceives and values Christian thought and communication. What do you make of some of the changes that you must have seen in your, uh, in your public ministry and how has that shaped the kind of communication you do? I think there's two distinct things going on there. One is, you know, within the church, there is in some ways a lessening of interesting in preaching. But and I don't want to be critical of others. That, that, that is that is not my my responsibility. But I do think that we've lost something of the craft of preaching. Um, we've almost become suspicious of that. But if I read the Old Testament prophets, I'm. Um, they didn't just splurge out stuff. They crafted it so much. What well, Margaret and I are reading through Isaiah at the moment, it is poetry. Isaiah 
crafted that to create the greatest effect. I'm, and I grew up on, on books like Sangster's The Craft of the Sermon, which some people think is outdated and outmoded. I don't think that at all. I think sermons need to be crafted. I think they, they need to be worked. I think words need to be honed. And I think people do respect them. The moment people can listen to somebody and say, he not only believes this, but he's worked at it. He's prepared this. I think that, that, that there's a response and a rapport. Um, now, I think you raised the issue of, of wider truth in, in, in our truth in, in, in the wider culture. And again, that for me is one of the reasons why I wanted to try and write fiction, because I think we've got to engage with that culture in any way we can. I think the danger is if we worry too much about relevance, then you can keep adapting and adapting. And by the time you become relevant, the world's actually moved on. I think what the world is looking at is authenticity and reality. Uh, they want to know that when I speak about Jesus, it is matched by my life. I mean, I, I had a thing the other day um, where we had to do one of those surveys um, for the government. And I always have the same thing when I get to religion. I'm, I, I refuse to give them that. I say, this is what you have to put down. I don't even let them put Christian because I think that's so misunderstood. I say, you must put down that I am a passionate, committed, but imperfect follower of Jesus. And I, I, I do think that's, that's what the world needs. I think there, there is no lessening of respect for the person of Jesus. There is just less access to him. Um, and, and, and I think we, we have to find whatever way we can. For me, my tiny contribution is in trying to write novels that, 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 that will raise those big questions. You know, my novels are not evangelistic tracts. Um, they are novels. And they raise the question um, and people, people go seeking an answer. But I think if we can, if we can let Jesus loose... Uh, into society instead of so often the church seems like it's protecting him. I mean, somebody once said to Spurgeon, didn't they? Why don't you preach a sermon defending the Bible? And he said, I'd sooner defend a roaring lion. And I think often we, we look like we're on the defensive. Uh, and, and I don't think we need to. I think we can engage. Uh, I, we can engage in the big questions. We can engage with people of other faiths, knowing that we are confident in who Jesus is. And that comes through eventually, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said that you, you were prepared to consider what God brought your way after the Salvation Army time. What, was the, what were the things that God brought your way, Chick? Uh, there were a number of things. Um, I headed up Hope 08 in Greater Manchester. Then I had a really interesting contact from LICC, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And for, I think, almost four years, I headed up the Whole Life Disciple Making Project here in the Northwest. And that was a great education. I worked with some really good people there and, and began to look at discipleship much more clearly than I'd done before. I owe them a great debt. And I only stood down from that uh, when I got the cancer diagnosis, which at first looked like it was going to be very serious. And having done the job I'd done in the Salvation Army, I knew what it was like to have an employee who was a long-term sick and you were kind of stuck 
and I never wanted to be on long-term sick. And I, so I immediately gave them my resignation uh, and they were very gracious and would have worked around me, but I, I, I just felt that wasn't fair on them. Stepped out of that. Uh, and, and then uh, the, my, my preaching ministry gained uh, momentum. Uh, and then, of course, the, 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 this last thing that's happened is uh, for, for a number of years, I did a fairly regular spot on Radio 2's Good Morning Sunday, and I did Pause for Thought on Radio 2. I love radio, and, and Margaret had prayed, she prayed regularly that the opportunity would, would come up again. And then out of the blue, uh, I get this invitation from Premier Christian Radio to work with them. I thought, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> so just at the right time things have come and, and and of course the writing has kept me very busy especially during lockdown that's that's given me more than enough to do well that's that's fabulous chick so a few things just to backtrack on then uh, sure. firstly the discipleship element of of your work and, and all that you learned in manchester um i guess the church has been maybe for a decade or two waking up to the challenge mm. of of turning quotes converts into yeah. fully devoted disciples. Um, and I believe it was uh, someone in LACC whose name escapes me, who talks about the need for a pastor to renegotiate their contract with the church because too often their <clears throat> quotes role is to preach, uh, to run uh, weddings and funerals um, and to visit when people are sick. They're not asking for the pastor to uh, equip them and to disciple them and to lead them into maturity in Christ and yet actually that's that's what Jesus was seeking to do with his followers and it's what he's seeking for us today maybe you could talk a little bit about what you were learning yeah oh my, my good friend Neil Hudson he, Neil he, Hudson, he that's spoke right. about renegotiating the pastoral contract which for for too many people in church means we come you care for us and mm -hmm. um, and very often when people leave a church the, the, the complaint they have is they didn't care enough. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that, you know, the church is a caring uh, institution. We, we, we care about people, but we are also an equipping place. We are about spiritual formation. Uh, and the, the two great thrusts when I was working with LICC were this thing about equipping people for discipleship, but also then recognizing the whole life nature of discipleship. You know, the, the, the 10, 110 equation, there are 168 hours in a week, you got to sleep 48. That leaves you 120. Even apart from if you're employed by the church, even for very committed Christians, committed to Jesus and committed to their church, the greatest amount of time they will spend in church-based activities will probably be 10 hours. That leaves uh, 100 hours, uh, 110 hours, where they are engaged in earning a living, leisure pursuits, uh, talking to the neighbours, visiting Aunt Sally in hospital. And, and we've allowed that to become the secular realm. There is no secular realm. The point of the church is to shape us and equip us so that we go out there. I mean, my early Salvation Army experience, in the way back before my time, in the early days of the Salvation Army, they didn't have citadels, they didn't have halls, they didn't have churches. They called them the barracks. And the barracks is a place where a soldier sleeps and gets fed and gets trained and then gets sent out to do warfare. And so that there was those two thrusts of, of we are there to equip people. That's the church's role to make disciples, not just converts, but also to remind them that the whole of life 
is the place of discipleship. Oh, that's fabulous to hear, um, Chick. Um, and I, when I introduced you, I talked about uh, you spent over 45 uh, years in full-time ministry. And of course, the language of full-time ministry was something of a misnomer. Everyone knew what I meant by it. Yeah. But actually, ideally, every Christian, whatever they're doing, whether they're homemaking or, or cutting hair or, or, or driving a taxi, is, is in full-time ministry. That would be the yeah, NICC Yeah, we are message. all in full-time ministry. Yeah. And I, I used to regularly say to people when I was leading a congregation, I get paid to be good, but you're all good for nothing. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and, and check the other thing that you, you mentioned very uh, kind of in passing was was a cancer scare. And I don't, I don't want to kind of delve into private stuff, but were the things that no, you I learned, think... were you things you learned in that period that you think might be useful? Obviously, we're in a, at a time when, you know, our whole mm. nation is, is, is suffering in different ways from maladies that they hadn't expected. Um, particularly with COVID nineteen, but um, you obviously had that cancer, and that that strikes fear into the the hearts of so mm. many. That word cancer. So talk us about your 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 journey in that, perhaps. Yeah, th- there was the inevitable shock. I remember when um, a doctor, without a great bedside manner, told me I'd I'd got cancer and told me that the treatment um, could have some very unpleasant side effects. Uh, and, and that's a point at which most um, speakers and preachers say that, you know, they offer the prayer. I have to say, I, I said a mildly bad word at that point because um, it was a bit of a shock. But you know what? Uh, a few weeks after it, I, I was I was doing the spot on Radio 2 and they asked me if I'd mind speaking about cancer, uh, having, having been diagnosed with cancer. And the first question they asked me was, it must have challenged your faith. And, you know, the honest truth is, it didn't, because I've always known that men get prostate cancer. Now I cope with that. So why should my theology suddenly change when that happens to me? I mean, we live in a fallen, imperfect world. I'm, the kingdom of God is with us already, and yet it is not yet fully come. Uh, sickness is, is part of living in this world. I'm, I learned that. I'm, I learned I'm... Oh, I tell you, I learned how wonderful the National Health Service is. Um, you know, it, a very old friend of mine once got into trouble for saying, <laughs> he said, the National Health Service is the greatest evidence of the coming of the kingdom of God in our community at this time. Now, I, you can argue with that, but I know what he meant. I'm, you know, it. That was wonderful, to, the, the treatment. I mean, when you've got prostate cancer, you find yourself in one or two undignified positions. Those staff on the NHS never put me in a situation where my dignity was taken away. Um, and, and to be in a, in a country where that kind of treatment comes and you're not, you know, I've lived in America, so I know what that treatment costs. I wasn't left bankrupt. That's, that's an evidence of God's love. Um, and and I, I just respect that hugely. But the other thing I learned was when somebody is, is ill like that, it's actually harder for the people around you often than it is for the person who is ill. I mean, I think maybe part of just being Scottish and that stubborn thing, I was like, okay, let's get on with it. And I also told myself, I'm not ill, but I've got a condition that if I don't get it treated, I will be ill. So I think that mental approach was good, but also... 
people all over the world prayed for us. I went public immediately and said, you know, please pray for us. And also because I'm a man, I like getting sympathy. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just an experience that I wouldn't have chosen. But I'm not sorry I had it. I, and it's made me appreciate every day. I don't have any bad days. Some days may be a bit difficult, but every day is a blessing. I'm it, and I'm so grateful for it. It's like, you know, when you're really hungry and you eat and the food tastes wonderful, to me, every day tastes delicious. Well, that's terrific. And uh, I mean, you're looking good um, as we're doing this via a Zoom call, uh, Chick. So you're looking after yourself now. I am indeed, yeah. I mean, I I can't believe that I'm 74, but I, I really am. I mean, we... Margaret and I do three mornings a week. We do a series of Pilates exercises. I, I walk, I run, um, we try to eat sensibly. I mean, I, I actually, six months ago, uh, started to, I, I, I eat lunch at 12.30 and we have dinner and we're finished up by half past six and I don't eat again until lunchtime the next day. Um, and it, it's brought my weight down a bit and, and I feel better for it. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I'm just saying that extra bit of discipline has been very good for me. And, and I think I owe it to the people who cared for me and all the money that was spent on me to look after my health. And I also believe, as, as you do, that the, tem that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and to abuse it is a wrong thing to do. Chick, you mentioned your, your, your love of radio and your excitement at uh, now presenting on uh, premiere on Fridays, uh, 10 to 1. Uh, so how did the love of radio develop? Uh, something from your youth or have a particular programme you used to listen to or um, uh, a radio show or um, a particular um, brand? Well, it goes back even before that. I, I mentioned earlier in the interview that I grew up in a house with no electricity, just gas lighting. And our first, it wasn't a radio, it was a wireless with wirelesses in those days. Our first wireless um, ran off what were called accumulator batteries, like glass batteries filled with, with, with acid. And you had to change them over once a week in the shop. And when you carried it home, you had to be very careful that you didn't spill it against your clothes. Otherwise, you'd have a large hole in your trousers. But I can still remember the excitement of our first wireless. This makes me sound really old. But I remember my dad sticking the wires into this accumulator battery. You know that wonderful wailing you used to get when you changed the channels? Ooh, like that. And it was just... the the miracle of, of sound in our house. And again, something I said earlier, I was a little kid who was not allowed to go to the cinema. So even things like moving pictures I hadn't seen, but, but this, this thing that brought sound from the world into my house was just amazing. And I've always loved radio. Um, I think we're very privileged in this country to have good quality top radio. It was one of the things I missed when we lived in the States. But in childhood, I remember listening every week to Journey Into Space and all that kind of stuff, where just with, with sound, you were transported into a different world. I say, and I think radio is the most personal medium. You've actually got a an opportunity to talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. And that's a huge privilege. Yeah, I think radio is wonderful. And and your faith, hope and love uh, Fridays, uh, what are the sort of things that you get up to that you like doing? Well, I really enjoy the first hour of the show. I have a guest 
he, uh, he or she is there for the first hour of the show. And we have four segments of conversation, about eight minutes each. So we have a good half hour to talk to each other. And I really enjoy that. I think a conversation on, on air where you mix serious topics with a bit of laughter and joy and natural conversation. I, I think that's just wonderful. I'm, I, I love the challenge of the technology. I'm, Cause you know, speaking wasn't too much of a problem for me, but getting used to uh, one computer where I'm, 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 I'm on Zoom and the other computer where I'm using that program that links you to the studio and shows you how long each track is. I, I love that. I think, you know, we've talked about the cancer thing. For my parents' generation, um, cancer was the thing they feared. For my generation, dementia is the thing that worries us. And to have something that stretches your mind and forces you to develop a new skill, that is not only a challenge, it is an enormous privilege. And I, I just love that stuff. I love gadgets anyhow. I, mean, I, I love living in the 21st century. Chick, as we uh, kind of come to a close in our conversation, just... Um... Uh, be useful maybe if you could share some of the the thinkers or writers that have uh, shaped your faith journey over the years yeah well I think I, I go way back to C.S. Lewis because um, in you know when I was young he, he, he was just for so many of us that, that that made a massive massive influence I think in later years um, people like N.T. Wright I'm you know standing on a a very solid biblical platform, yet daring to think outside of the box. Um, that I found, it's not just his writings, which are extremely helpful, but, but just the fact of somebody with the clarity of thought and the courage to do that, um, that has been uh, massively influential for me. And just as, there's just a whole lot of good stuff around in the church, um, I think we could become even braver. Um, that would be good to see, but I, I think things are moving in many ways in the right direction. Yeah, well, of course, you can get the um, Ask N.T. Wright podcast. I don't know if you listen yeah. in, Chick. And, and interestingly, also, there'll be uh, some material on C.S. Lewis coming up on Premier, and uh, there's a show starting very soon. So um, uh, that's two of the boxes that you'd... Uh, <laughs> Um, you could, you've just mentioned ticked, as it were. So, uh, so, so nice one. Um, I guess you know. You said you're 74. You look back now on um, on a lifetime of, of public ministry. Um, any regrets? Any any things you particularly delighted back looking back? Well, I think everybody has regrets. I'm uh, that there are moments when we when we did not act or speak like followers of Jesus. In fact, on the Faith, Hope and Love show uh, last Friday, I had uh, Harry Reid on. Um, Harry was a national leader of the Salvation Army some years ago. He's 97 now. And I wanted, there's something I wanted to do. I wanted to apologize to him on air because once I was very rude to him from a public platform and he very graciously forgave me. I mean, without any fuss, he didn't make a fuss. He just said, doesn't matter. And, and, and the first thing he did after he became the principal of the Salvation Army College was to take Margaret and me onto his staff. And when I reminded him of that incident, he had totally forgotten it. So uh, that, was, that was a regret that I've long had. And it, it, I, maybe 
to have those regrets is not a bad thing. It, it, it keeps you a little bit humble. But, you know, I've just had so many privileges. I've traveled all over the world. I've preached all over the world. I've, I've met some wonderful people. Like I said, when people ask me what to pray for, just say thanks. Yeah. So you're, you're now kind of obviously residing in the Withenshaw area of Manchester. Uh, mm -hmm. and Manchester itself, of course, is, um, has, has seen some, some significant growth spiritually through uh, a number of, of, of healthy local churches. And obviously the, the message, message trust particularly began in Withenshaw. I don't know if you're connected at all with those folk, but uh, I certainly have been up to that area and seen some of the fruit of some of the astonishing work they've done. Yeah, I, I worked with Andy and the message guys for some time. When I headed up the Hope 08 thing, that was largely funded by the message. So I worked very closely with them then. Yeah, they've done some great things, great things. And Manchester is a, is a great city. Well, I mean, when I was heading up Hope 08, I discovered that there were little churches that, you know, outside of that congregation, Few folk had heard of them, but there were little churches in and around the city doing wonderful things in their communities. Um, this is a great city to be in. Apart from all those good churches, it is home to Manchester United. I mean, this is, this is the next best thing to heaven, Andy. You should move up here as fast as you can. Well, I don't quite know how to respond to that as an Everton fan, but hey, um, you, you've mentioned Man U, so, <laughs> so each to their own, uh, Chick, each to their own. Um, Chick, is, is there a particular verse that you'd, uh, that's been precious to you over the years or a life yes. verse or anything that you could just share as we kind of come to the conclusion of our talk? Yeah, 1 John chapter 3 and the opening verses. Beloved, we are God's children now, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But, what, but we know that when he appears, we shall see him as he is. And then it goes on to say, and those who thus hope in him purify themselves, even as he is pure. I love that verse. One day I will be perfectly mirroring the beauty of Jesus. And when I despair of myself sometimes and think I'm making very slow progress, I think of that verse. That because of that, because I know that he who has begun a good work in me will one day bring it to completion. That keeps me from ever despairing. I'm going to be, I'm going to be who God wanted me to be. I love the five blind boys from Alabama, black gospel music group who've got a song that goes like this. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm better than I used to be. And I'm getting better all the time. That's discipleship. That's fabulous, Chick. Well, we're, we're in your debt today from, for, for sharing so much of your, your life. And we're so grateful to you for um, your vibrancy and uh, for your testimony of God's goodness over the years. So thank you so much for being my guest today on the, uh, the profile. It's been a privilege, Andy. Thank you for having me.